For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. And good afternoon. Welcome on this Monday afternoon in the Mile High City. I'm Sandy Clough. Sean Rotar is in Las Vegas this week, and he will be reporting periodically during the course of the week. Uh, today is an interesting day. Uh, typical in some ways of uh, Mondays that immediately precede the Super Bowl, which, of course, will be played on Sunday afternoon in Las Vegas at Allegiant Stadium. The similarities involve the stadium being the site of the team interviews tonight. One team will follow the other. Uh, The AFC is represented in this Super Bowl, of course, by the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. And, of course, uh, a little bit of awkwardness, perhaps, in that the Kansas City Chiefs will be practicing this week at the Las Vegas Raiders facility, which probably isn't thrilling to the Raiders, but that's what they do whenever – the conference city is the host. The conference champion practices at the team facility. And I believe the 49ers are practicing at UNLV's football facility this week, which I'm sure has been dressed up a little bit if it needed to be dressed up at all for the purposes of uh, the 49ers. And uh, the Chiefs will have a chance to maybe gain some kind of uh, psychological edge by knowing that they are practicing at the Raiders facility. The Raiders probably aren't all that happy about it. But that's later in the week, practice sessions, that is. Uh, The teams will meet uh, tonight and will be speaking with the media in a few hours. What is different this year? Actually, two things about the commissioner's State of the Union press conference, which used to be held on a Friday back in the day. Well, in recent years, they shifted the commissioner's press conference from Friday to Wednesday. There didn't seem to be any particular reason for doing that, but they did it, and the format was the same. Anyone at the Super Bowl could show up at the press conference. 
and of course raise their hand to ask a question and only certain reporters would be granted the opportunity to question the commissioner but the commissioner was not spared tough questions from time to time and back in the day and I go back far enough covering Super Bowls to remember how this took place. The commissioner's press conference was on Friday. From 1960 through 1989, the commissioner of the National Football League was Pete Rozelle, who I think stands to this day as the greatest commissioner ever in any of the four major professional sports. There has only, in the last few decades, been an actual commissioner of the National Hockey League. He used to be called the president of the NHL. And back when I first came out here and started covering the NHL and had the chance to, uh wasn't one of the great breaks in my career, cover the Colorado Hockey Rockies in their last year of existence, in an early season game, for some reason, since the Rockies ended up moving at the end of the season, the then president of the National Hockey League, a fellow named John Ziegler, was at a Colorado Rockies hockey game at Old McNichols Arena. We had him on between periods. But he was not a commissioner. He was a president. Of course, today, Gary Bettman is the commissioner of the National Hockey League, just as Adam Silver is the commissioner of the National Basketball Association. Rob Manfred is the commissioner of Major League Baseball. And Roger Goodell is the commissioner of the National Football League. Well, they changed things this year. The commissioner's press conference will be held at around the same time as the teams are gathering at Allegiant Field. In addition to that, the commissioner's press conference being held today is attended by only those who were formerly invited to the press conference. It is not an open press conference. Certain people were not invited. Mike Florio, for example, of NBC Sports and Pro Football Talk did not get an invitation. So not only have they moved the press conference from Wednesday to Monday, they have made it an invitation-only affair. And as such, many media members who will be covering the Super Bowl will not be able to attend. Now, some will not be able to attend because they weren't invited. Some, even those here and there who might not be getting in until later on today, will miss the press conference, even if they were invited to attend it. This is clearly done with a purpose in mind. They don't want Roger Goodell to have to answer tough questions. Questions about, oh, the officiating which have come up once again in recent weeks. 
Questions about the current controversy on the concussion settlement, a subject we will probably get into a little bit later on this week. Surprise, surprise. Some of the former players who thought that they would be receiving benefits from a settlement to the lawsuit that was filed years ago aren't getting those benefits. Maybe they're being delayed. Maybe they're even being denied in some cases. But there's been some controversy over that. And that is obviously a question that will come up, and who knows, maybe one of the reporters who was invited will deign to ask a question on that subject or on the officiating or on other issues that might be somewhat uncomfortable. The commissioner of the National Football League. Now, if you've been listening to me do sports talk for the better part of 45 years, you know that I don't complain about things like this very often, if at all. Uh, I'm not in Las Vegas this week, so it doesn't make any difference to me when Roger Goodell holds his press conference, whether it's Friday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, it doesn't matter to me. But I think it is worth mentioning, and in fact was written about at length by Peter King in his Football Morning in America column that came out today. And you would think, in a sport that is as popular as the National Football League is, that once a year, for one hour, there would be an opportunity for any reporter who wished to attend the commissioner's press conference to be able to attend and ask any question that he or she might want to ask. You would think that one hour out of an entire year could be devoted to that, and the questions would not be screened in advance for purposes of uh, making sure that the commissioner is not unsettled any kind of uncomfortable question. You would think that one hour throughout the year for a commissioner who is famously inaccessible, and I was talking about Pete Rozelle, the contrast there. And Pete Rozelle, from the first days of the Super Bowl's existence, when the Super Bowl wasn't all that big a deal, remember the first Super Bowl? between the Packers and the Chiefs at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum was not even a sellout. They were begging people to go to the game. Two networks telecast the game simultaneously. TV ratings were not particularly great, at least by comparison to what the TV ratings are now for the Super Bowl, which will, by the way, be on CBS this year as part of the uh, rotation. CBS's turn to cover the Super Bowl and 2024, following the 2023 season. But what Roselle used to do was conduct a press conference on Friday, 
take questions, any questions, and he was a former public relations man, as the initials might suggest, Pete Rozelle, PR. And he was brilliant, and he enjoyed sparring with reporters. Now, during the last 10 years of his time as commissioner, Pete Rozelle was spending a lot of time in court. And he might not have been quite as open as he had been during the first, oh, 20 years or so of a reign that lasted pretty close to 30 years. But what he would do after the press conference, and this is what coaches used to do, coaches around here used to do, believe it or not, until fairly recently, He'd walk off the podium, but he would make himself available off to the side. And he would entertain questions from reporters who choose or chose at the time to stay around. And it wasn't necessarily headline-making stuff that came out of those side sessions. But it was an example, again, of how comfortable Roselle was. Ask me any questions. And if you don't feel I answered a question adequately or didn't get asked a question that I should have been asked, I'll spend 20, 30 minutes off to the side once the press conference is over in an informal setting, just talking. And sometimes that's all it was, but it was interesting to get the perhaps even more unfettered thoughts of the commissioner. Now, were the issues as numerous and as complicated? Was the National Football League, the billions of dollars worth of revenues that they rake in every year, was it anything like that? No, it wasn't during the years that Pete Rozelle was the commissioner of the NFL. And I am not suggesting by any means that by the 1970s that football was anything other than it is today. The national pastime, in effect. More than baseball was. And that isn't just something that happened the last 20, 30 years. That's been true for more than 50 years. That football has been America's most popular sport more so than baseball, which is a niche sport now. Basketball, niche sport, NBA. NHL, niche sport. Now, international in scope with respect to hockey, basketball, and yes, even baseball, as we're finding out year by year, increasingly an international sport. But yes, I will grant you that things are a little bit different today. But rather than be more open, the commissioner of the National Football League now is more secluded, less accessible than he's ever been. And this week is a good example of that. Of course, the game itself is Sunday. It's the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. And... One thing I'd like to 
discuss at least at the outset today, and we'll be talking about the Nuggets weekend, which was uh, basically as successful as Sean and I anticipated it would be on Friday. And we'll talk about that. The Avalanche back in action tonight with an early game that I believe begins uh, Danny Bailey in about 45 minutes, does it not, against the Rangers back in Madison Square Garden? I, I believe you are correct. Five o'clock start. And, uh, of course, we want to remind you, you're listening to Mile High Sports Radio, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3, milehighsports.com. You can watch via milehighsports.com slash watch or listen, milehighsports.com slash listen. We're also available via the Mile High Sports app. And our executive producer is, of course, the great Danny Bailey. And the phone number by which you can call or text us is 303-831-1340. That's 303-831-1340. But one of the things I was thinking about over the weekend, because the 49ers and Chiefs, of course, four years ago met in the Super Bowl, and we outlined last week how much the teams have changed since then, and that the 49ers have gotten stronger offensively. They have a different quarterback, of course, the Chiefs quarterback. They still have to settle for Patrick Mahomes, I guess. Uh, Trent Williams has come on since the 49ers are last in this game. Christian McCaffrey was acquired in 2022 by a trade with the Carolina Panthers. Brandon Ayuk was drafted by the 49ers. This is his first Super Bowl. And their offensive DVOA ranks number one. That's an efficiency metric. Number one in all the NFL. That was basically who the Chiefs were four years ago. The high-flying offense. The leading offense in the league. And the 49ers also lead the league this year in explosive pass rate. That means passes that go for gains of 20 or more yards. 21.4% of their pass plays go 20 or more yards. Understandable with that kind of percentage that they're number one in the league. The Chiefs, by contrast, the offensive powerhouse from four years ago, number eight in DVOA, and number 24 at 12.3% in explosive pass rate. 24th. And in the playoffs, you think, well, playoffs, they've made more big plays. And that's true. They've made a few more big plays. All the way up to 13.6%. This is compared to San Francisco's 21.4%. So the Chiefs are grinding it out, not so much to keep Patrick Mahomes from throwing the ball, but an acknowledgement that the Kansas City deep passing game without Tyreek Hill, who was in the last Super Bowl game for the Chiefs that they played against the 49ers four years ago. Tyreek Hill is playing for the Miami Dolphins now. So now, instead of having the 49er defense against the Chiefs offense, that being the most significant 
group-to-group matchup in the game. It's flipped. It's now 49er offense, Kansas City defense, one of the best in the league. The Chiefs on defense. And an X factor in the game is a Chiefs running back, not a Chiefs wide receiver, not even a Chiefs tight end as great as Kelsey still is. It's Pacheco who's the X factor, the running back for the Chiefs, who the last time the Chiefs played the 49ers in the regular season had a very big game. The 49ers had a lot of trouble, and I think he's going to be the key to the game. I like San Francisco to win this game, but I can see why, even though the 49ers are slightly favored, favored in this game, that the majority of people who have early thoughts on this game are leaning toward Kansas City. I can perfectly well understand that. Although their offense is no longer explosive, their offensive line is the best pass-blocking line in the league this year. And even without guard Joe Tooney last week, and Tooney's got a pectoral issue, he's not going to play in the Super Bowl either anymore than he played in the AFC Championship game. They still got along pretty well against the Baltimore Ravens, did they not? They absolutely did, yep. ton of points, but uh, we'll talk more about uh, this matchup as we uh, go on through the week and a little bit later on in the program today. Big basketball weekend around here. And for the Nuggets, there was nothing but good news. Uh, For CU, CSU, DU, uh, mixed results. And so there continue to be important games on the horizon. We'll talk basketball next as we continue. Sandy Clef with you. This is Mile High Sports Radio. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Sandy Clough in Denver. Sean Rotar will be reporting from Las Vegas, site of Super Bowl 58, throughout the course of this week. And we will include much of what Sean has to contribute on our program throughout the course of the week. Today, of course, is basically the meet and greet session with the two teams out at Allegiant Stadium. And that event takes place a few hours from now. The teams, of course, have uh, arrived by now in Las Vegas, which I happen to think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, either on the phones or on our text line regarding uh, this point at 303-831-1340. What do you think of Las Vegas as a site for the Super Bowl? First time Las Vegas, needless to say. With the Raiders just having arrived a few short years ago, first time Las Vegas has hosted a Super Bowl game. And uh, I was talking with Sean on Friday about this. I I think it'll be very interesting to get everyone's impressions because rarely do we get a Super Bowl 
played in a city that's never hosted a Super Bowl before. Uh, I'd have to go back, maybe try to think when, when the last one was. Remember, uh, Danny, the Super Bowl that was held in Detroit? Hasn't been back since. But a Super Bowl was once upon a time played in Detroit. Wasn't it San Francisco and Cincinnati? 1981? I'll bet there's been a more recent first-time venue than Detroit in the very early 1980s. But uh, we'll, we'll check on that. Las well, Vegas. Oh, it would have been. Cool. Has there been one at SoFi? At SoFi uh, Stadium in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah but the, I, I mean. See, I count the Rose Bowl okay, as Los Angeles. Yep. I know it's Pasadena, but they the first Super Bowl was played at the L.A. Same Memorial City. Coliseum. Yeah. So, uh, yes, I mean, in Inglewood, <laughs> yes, it was the first Super Bowl ever held in Inglewood. There have been Super Bowls in Los Angeles. There have been Super Bowls in Pasadena. Um, but it, it's, it's very unusual uh, to see sites, other than those that are seemingly part of the regular rotation, uh, think of Miami. Uh, you think of the Rose Bowl, uh, SoFi a few years ago. Stadiums that are recently built, Minnesota, Minneapolis, but that that's happened before. That wasn't a first-timer a few years back, right? In Minneapolis, that was not a first time. Atlanta's hosted Super Bowls before. So it'd be interesting to get uh, Sean's impressions and uh, those impressions uh, that others may share who have uh, uh, either not been to Las Vegas or are covering a Super Bowl there for the first time. I can't believe that there are too many people, at least who are covering the Super Bowl, who've never been to Las Vegas before. But uh, to cover a Super Bowl, I think they'll do a good job. I think that the city is, for obvious reasons, well-prepared to host an event as big as the Super Bowl. Las Vegas does big all the time. And Las Vegas' response, uh, not only to the Raiders, but especially to the Golden Knights, has been exceptional. And... uh, I guess a few years back, Danny, wasn't it true that the NBA's all-star game was played in Las Vegas and they, they, they weren't necessarily thrilled with it um, all around? But I, I think Las Vegas is a great big event city and uh, they'll do a nice job for the Super Bowl. Uh, turning to the Nuggets, uh, an unremarkable weekend, but an unremarkable weekend in a good way as the Nuggets had uh, – a rare two-game home series in which travel was not involved on either side. The Nuggets on Friday night hosted the Portland Trailblazers, knocked them off as expected rather easily, 120-108. to Last night is a little bit harder, 112-103. to And in some ways, I thought last night's game was more impressive The Nuggets had to work for it a little more. They were down by as many as 14 points in the first half and actually trailed by 12 at the end of the first quarter last night. 37-25 had to come back from that, which, as you might expect, they basically did in the second quarter. Portland had a slight lead at the half. 
But Portland was playing a pretty good third quarter through about the first seven and a half minutes of the third quarter. And they had an 84-75 lead. The two teams are basically trading baskets. Portland's lead at the half, I think, was three. And they had gotten it out to nine. And the teams are going back and forth. And Portland was shooting the three ball very well. And the Nuggets were frustrated at some of the calls and non-calls. Aaron Gordon got teed up. Uh, with about four minutes left, a little more than four minutes left in the third quarter, and they're down by nine. But, uh, Danny, you are following the game, I'm sure. You are our nugget enthusiast, our, our chief nugget enthusiast here at Mile High Sports. And I'm as I'm watching the game, I'm thinking it's only a matter of time. But I started thinking that, about four minutes into the second quarter, only a matter of time before the Nuggets go on a 15, 20-point run and take the lead and sail off with yet another win against a shorthanded team that is in full rebuild mode even when it's healthy. But it got to be about five minutes to go in the third quarter and four and a half minutes to go in the third quarter, and that run had not yet materialized. Did uh, you have a sense it was inevitable, or were you getting a little bit worried that this might just be one of those nights where a shorthanded team, remember uh, the Blazers didn't have Jeremy Grant, uh, for example. They were uh, missing some other pieces as well, and uh, Grant didn't play in the Friday night game either. But uh, Brogdon didn't play last night. That was different from Friday night. Brogdon played Friday night, did not play last night. So they're missing two starters, Brogdon and Grant, 40% of their starting lineup. But you're beginning to wonder, shades of the Orlando game, when uh, an Orlando Magic team that was missing half its players still had enough to beat the Nuggets, who had an 18-point lead in the third quarter that night. Did it feel that way to you? Little bit. It seemed like they might drop that one yesterday. Yeah. Because they had just beat them. They got yeah. a road trip in California later this week. Later this later week. This week exactly right. Where they'll be in LA and then Sacramento on back a back to, to back. back. Yep. So I thought it might have been a little bit of a look ahead spot. Yeah. And they were hoping to start that little three day break a little earlier. Yeah. But they got they got yeah. the win and uh Well they scored sixteen straight yeah. points. Well, uh, from uh, the time it was 84-75, a little over four minutes to go in the third quarter, they scored 16 straight points, so you do the math. They went from nine down to seven ahead, and they were never challenged really after that. Won the game by 9-1-12 to uh, 1-0-3. It was not as scintillating a performance by Jokic as the one we saw on Friday night, but this this is where the Nuggets are so They had, I thought yesterday, one of the best performances all year from the supporting cast coming off the bench. I thought Watson was great, and it's not the first time he's been great, especially over the last month, six weeks. He's had plenty. It's getting more and more frequent. Wow. He played 30 minutes last night. Gordon played 30 minutes last night. Porter only played... 24 minutes last night. And it wasn't so much. Gordon and Porter each scored 12 points. They had decent games. Not great, but decent. 
Watson earned his minutes last night. 30 minutes off the bench. When was the last time, and this doesn't include November when Reggie Jackson started in place of the injured Jamal Murray, when was the last time a guy came off the bench and played 30 minutes for the Nuggets? Maybe Bruce Brown probably last Bruce year. Brown, yeah. Probably Bruce Brown last year. Bruce Brown, who hardly plays now for Toronto, which would mean to me that at some point, either sooner before the deadline this year or later over the course of the offseason, he's going to be dealt because he's hardly playing at all for Toronto. But Watson played 30 minutes, 12 points, six rebounds, one assist, two steals, one block, only one turnover. In 30 minutes, he was plus 14, and he was a big part of their comeback late in the third quarter, on into the fourth quarter. He was terrific. And I thought, though, his numbers weren't scintillating, that it was one of Christian Brown's better games. He was plus 18 in 28 minutes, four points, three rebounds, two assists, one steal but no turnovers. Uh, Jackson was a plus six in 21 minutes, and I thought Reggie Jackson was a lot better yesterday than he was Friday night. And Jordan had four points and a rebound, was plus five and eight minutes off the bench. And Jokic, who played 38 minutes on Friday, was back in that 35 to 40 range. Last night only played 34 minutes. And that's, I think, where the Nuggets would like That's to the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot, 30 to 35 minutes. And no, he didn't have a triple-double, as he did on Friday, with 27 points, 22 rebounds, and 12 assists. Last night, I, I, I don't know what was wrong with him, actually, Danny. Only 28 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists, 2 steals in 34 minutes. Well, he had uh, his hands full with uh, DeAndre did, This Aiden, was a rare pretty game. Well. Because you remember this, I'm sure. Early in Aiton's career with the Phoenix Suns, he gave Jokic fits. He was one of the few centers, even five, six, seven years ago, who would give Jokic problems. Game in and game out. Remember the playoff series just two years ago? In 2022, right? 21-22 season? When Phoenix swept the Nuggets? And you go back and look at those four games, and I'm not saying eight now played Jokic necessarily, but Jokic got ejected in the fourth game and was clearly frustrated. You go back and look at the numbers, there wasn't that much of a difference between Aiton and Jokic, and that's as recently as two years ago. Now, last year, and you would assume this year too, and this was obviously true on Friday night. Aiton is receding. He's regressing as he gets older. But every now and then, he'll remind you why he at one time, not all that long ago, was regarded as one of the best, what, Danny, five or six centers in the league? And a major strength for the Phoenix Suns. Probably, yeah. Right? Not that long ago. And he found that game again last night and basically matched Jokic with 27 points, nine rebounds, four assists. This is DeAndre Ayton we're talking about. 
One steal, two blocks, only turned it over once. Jokic was minus five. And Aiton basically played the Jokic minutes and a few more. Aiton was plus five in 39 minutes. He only played 27 minutes on Friday. He was terrible. They were better off when he wasn't in the game. He was minus 16 in a game that Portland lost on Friday night by 12. But he was good last night. And I'll tell you, Simons can play. Portland's problem, apart from the fact that they're in full rebuild mode, which hopefully will keep Chauncey Billups safe as the head coach, Portland's problem is that not only is it a rebuilding situation, but they, they don't have any size beyond eight. Really don't have any size, at least not any real size of quality. They're asking old friend Jabari Walker, former CU Buffalo, who I think came out at least one year before he should have. That rookie year for him was actually last year. He hardly played. This year, he's starting for now due to some of the injuries they've got. Uh, played 30 minutes last night and wasn't very good. <laughs> it's minus 22 in the 30 minutes. Wasn't very good. But they, they really don't have size. So they're asking people like Walker to play power forward when he's kind of a three slash four. Now, I know... Basketball is increasingly positionless now. And you're looking not only to get your five best players on the floor, but most importantly, five guys who work well together. And that's a tough choice for Chauncey to make because you have the number one draft choice, Scoot Henderson, coming off the bench. And he had 30 on Friday against the defending world champions at the age of 19. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday was his 20th birthday. So he wasn't a teenager anymore. And he wasn't quite as good last night. He had a terrible shooting night, uh, but still finished with respectable numbers. 14 points, 8 rebounds, 9 assists coming off the bench. Uh, Portland, in a year or two, will be good. Whether Chauncey will still be the coach then uh, is open to question, but a good weekend nonetheless for the Nuggets. When we come back, we'll look at a weekend that – for CU, CSU, and DU was not as uniformly positive, although for CSU, it was a good weekend, winning a game they should have won, but playing a very solid game and taking care of business. CU not so fortunate at Utah, and DU lost again for a second time this year to Oral Roberts, but again in the Summit League, all that matters is the conference tournament because there's only going to be one qualifier coming out of the Summit League for the NCAA basketball tournament. All of that just ahead. Mile High Sports, stay with us. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. 
It's Andy Clough, Sean Rotar on Mile High Sports Radio, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3, milehighsports.com slash watch. Or if you prefer to listen, milehighsports.com slash listen. Mile High Sports app is also available if you choose to uh, listen to us that way. And, of course, our executive producer is the great Danny Bailey. You can call or text us your thoughts. 303-831-1340. Uh, we talked a bit about uh, the Super Bowl today and uh, about the Nuggets weekend against the Portland Trailblazers. The Nuggets, uh, uh, Danny Bailey, very correct in uh, pointing out the Nuggets uh, have a bit of a break here. They don't play again until Thursday. They take on the Lakers at uh, Crypto.com Arena Thursday night. They uh, are right back at it Friday night in Sacramento. And Monday night, a week from tonight in Milwaukee against the Bucks. Then they're back home on the 14th for the Sacramento Kings. The All-Star break gives them uh, uh, more than a week off until they resume play on the 22nd of the month here against Washington. Next night, they're in Portland for a rematch with the Blazers. Then on the 25th at Golden State, the 28th at home, again to the Sacramento Kings, and to the Miami Heat on the 29th. That'll close out the month of February and early March. They go out to Los Angeles to play the Lakers once again. So those are the next 10 games in the Nuggets' schedule. Uh, starting on Thursday night in Los Angeles, six of those 10 games are on the road. Uh, the standings remain quite tight. Uh, Oklahoma City and Minnesota in the West, both 35 and 15, a game behind at 33 and 15. The Clippers and the Nuggets are in fourth place, but right there at 35 and 16, even uh, the road win home loss differential doesn't vary much among these four teams. Oklahoma City is plus nine, Minnesota's plus 11, the Clippers are plus 10, and the Nuggets are plus 10. Then there's a bit of a drop to Sacramento and Phoenix at plus seven and plus four, respectively, in fifth and sixth. New Orleans is plus four in seventh. Uh, Dallas is actually minus one in eighth. But the Lakers had a glorious weekend, knocking off the Celtics in Boston and the Knicks, who are on a long winning streak at Madison Square Garden. So the Lakers are now a plus team with more road wins than home losses, and Utah came storming back to beat the Bucks last night at home, and Utah remains a plus team at plus two. And really, uh, those figure to be the 10 teams uh, that uh, are involved. Of course, uh, four of the 10 will have to play in uh, the play-in tournament for the final two spots in the playoff field of eight. Uh, pretty much the same kind of deal, one through eight in the east with Boston, Milwaukee, and Cleveland along with the Knicks, first, second, third, and fourth, respectively. Philadelphia, fifth, Indiana, sixth, Orlando and Miami, seventh and eighth. And then there's a drop all the way down to ninth place Chicago and tenth place Atlanta. And uh, even further back uh, are the teams at 11 through 15 in the east, uh, those five teams being Brooklyn, Toronto, and, of course, uh, the Charlotte Hornets along with Washington and Detroit. Um, Houston, Golden State, Memphis, Portland, and San Antonio are the five teams out of uh, even the playing field in the Western Conference at the moment. Uh, over the weekend, 
uh, watched uh, CU and CSU at length, uh, CU in Utah, against a team that probably will be in the tournament. Uh, the Utes have always been a tough out at home, and there was uh, no difference uh, this weekend as they knocked off the Buffs. And as a result of that 73-68 loss, Colorado drops into a tie for fourth in the Pac-12 with Stanford, Utah, and now UCLA. That's probably the bad news. The good good news is that they trail the two teams tied for second by just a game, Oregon and Washington. And even Arizona is only two games ahead. And the Buffs, after a Thursday night date up in Boulder with Arizona State, which has slumped off in recent weeks, get Arizona in Boulder. And I believe that's an 8 o'clock start, Danny. Uh, You can double-check me on that uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, But I believe it's an 8 p.m. Saturday start up in Boulder. And that is the game that, in my opinion, will either get Colorado into the tournament or keep Colorado perhaps out of the tournament given the fact that this is not a strong year in the Pac-12. And current projections have only three teams. In most current projections, have only three teams out of the Pac-12 making the national tournament. I guess it could be four if someone came from back in the Pac and won the conference tournament and got the automatic bid. But If Arizona or Oregon or Washington State, maybe even Utah, were to win the conference tournament, any one of those schools, they're already probably, uh, at least three of them, are most likely in the tournament anyway. Uh, I don't think Colorado necessarily has to win the tournament to get in, but the Buffs have some nine games remaining, five of the nine are at home. They've got to grab a couple on the road and win every one of the home games. Every one of the home games is now a must. Uh, By losing on the road, uh, every time they played on the road this year, save for one, they put themselves in a position where they got to stay clean at home. They they can't lose at home. They are undefeated at this point uh, up in Boulder, uh, where they've always been under Chad Boyle, a pretty good home team. But they need that win against Arizona. Now, I watched Arizona against Stanford last night playing at home, and Stanford gave him a game until the last two or three minutes. Stanford had a lead at the half, pretty pretty large lead, actually. Arizona came back early in the second half on a run. But Colorado needs its guys. And one through six went healthy. Colorado, I believe, is a tournament team. Now, they may have to play their way into the field of 64 with a play-in win. That that could happen. But they were missing Luke O'Brien, and they were missing Cody Williams, the sensational freshman, on Saturday. With or without those two, Thursday night, 
you should be able to handle Arizona State, even without those two. Saturday, all hands on deck. They'll have to have everybody. If they're going to knock off Arizona. And, and they've it already is beat Oregon. And 8 o'clock p.m. 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock start. All right. Um, my sense is, although it's for some reason not been identified as a national TV game, but you figure with an 8 o'clock start, doesn't it have to be? It's a 10 it is on ESPN. ESPN. Start. Yep. Right. Okay. So we will see whether Colorado is a tournament team or not on Saturday night. Uh, for CSU, things are perhaps a little more manageable, although CSU is tied for fifth behind Utah State, Boise State, New Mexico, and San Diego State. There's a favorable home schedule ahead. And uh, listen, Colorado State's already played at Utah State. They've already played at Boise State. They have home games remaining against both, much as CU needs to beat Arizona and Arizona State. That goes without saying. Uh, CU needs to win its home games remaining against Utah State. And Boise State, uh, they beat New Mexico at home earlier this year. Uh, They play Wyoming in Fort Collins after losing almost in an unimaginable way to Wyoming and Laramie about nine days ago. That's must win. So both CU and CSU need to win at home and keep winning at home between now and and the end of the regular season. Uh, DU got beat by Oral Roberts, as you mentioned earlier, 82-76. Uh, DU is now 4-5 and five in conference play. But again, all that matters is the postseason tournament in the Summit League, and the winner of that tournament will automatically qualify as uh, the only team receiving an NCAA tournament bid. Uh, there was some terrific college basketball this weekend. Wow, especially on Saturday uh, Houston, Kansas, Duke at North Carolina, Tennessee at Kentucky. The home team uh, won in each of the first two instances, but uh, Tennessee's smashing of Kentucky uh, may have exposed Kentucky a little bit, but it uh, once again reminded folks that uh, when Tennessee has it going, uh, they're unquestionably a Final Four caliber team. And uh, the uh, Connect kid, from Northern Colorado, the transfer from Northern Colorado is emerging as maybe one of the four or five best players in the country. I don't know if he's player of the year material, but the impact he's had on that uh, Tennessee team is unmistakable. We'll talk a little Avs who are getting underway against the New York Rangers in just a few moments. When we continue and look ahead to, for the Avalanche at least, the final 33 games of the 23-24 season. This is Mile High Sports Radio. 